Welcome to the Being Human podcast brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's leadership development and coaching programs, head to firsthuman.com. Now enjoy the show. Dave, a lot of people who follow you on Twitter will know your love of walking. Here we are in Wiltshire where you live in England. Tell us a bit about the, the scene here. Well, you're in the heart of Neolithic England, so over to the right we've got Avebury Stone Circle, which is much older than Stonehenge. In fact, we often joke Stonehenge is there to attract the American tourists so they don't mess up our life over here. Okay. You've got Silbury Hill, which is just a hill they built with antler bones and the shoulders of ox. Right. It's an incredible place. You've got the yeah. Long Barrows. Every cluster of trees around here hides a burial mound. So Long Barrows, that's a... Yeah, that's burial mounds. In fact, we're about to go in and have a look at a couple of them now. So okay. The thing I love about this place is you get big horizons. Yeah. And at dusk and dawn, so many people have died and been buried here. You don't look over your shoulder. Right. <laughs> right. You know, the famous you know, poem about a fearsome fiend just close behind him tread. That's what it feels like at dusk okay. and dawn up here. And we've got a big racing fraternity, so the Queen's horses are kept just down the road. Okay. There's some big gallops up here. So you come up early in the morning, you get this wonderful sight of racehorses. Right. Steam coming out of their nostrils in the morning sun. It's just okay. a lovely place. Yeah. So you walk around here, and, and where else do you like to walk? Last year was Annapurna. This year's going to be Everest um, Base Camp. And when did this start, this this love of walking? I mean, you, you grew up in Wales. Oh, I grew up in Wales. So we went sailing Wednesday night and Sunday morning and then climbing Saturday and Sunday evening. Right. So I grew up in the hills of Snowdonia. Tell us a bit more about your, your path to, to university and, and, and how you developed. Oh, well, my father was a vet. Okay. Right? He was a country vet. Um, and if you've had to actually help him do sheath washings on a bull on a freezing cold February morning, being laughed at by Welsh farmers at puberty. So I decided to go to university to study physics and philosophy instead, anything to avoid that. Right? Then I was heavily involved with a whole bunch of uh, programme to combat racism, World Council of Churches, that got me out to Australia and Africa and Latin America. Yeah. And that was two or three years, and it was absolutely fascinating, you know, Aboriginal rights in Australia. Right. It makes you multicultural. Okay. I mean, you, if, you, if you, you see some of the oppression out there, you come back, you just can't be comfortable anymore. So you think right. differently. Okay. And from there it was, you know, got to get a job. You know? Yeah. Um, ended up in personal and training because anybody with international experience was useful. Yeah. That was the days before it became a sort of rigorous procession and made the mistake one day, well, it was a compliment of, I thought HR was there to uh, look after the staff. So I told the new financial director off for the way he treated his staff and got summoned to a disciplinary hearing the next day where I was told I could work for him or I could leave the company. It was one or the other because nobody had stood up to him before. Okay. And that's when I got into computing. Computing. Okay. And that preceded you get your interested in, in knowledge and the study of knowledge? Yeah, well, what we did then is we, we had to computerise the accounts department and I'd okay. done some work on HR records. This is when mm. you had DOS boxes on the top of PCs and stuff mm. like that. Mm. And if you're in finance, which I was by then, so I was running Treasury, you know when the company's going to go under. Right. So I started to look for jobs, ended up as a consultant building decision support systems. Okay. Uh, for people like Guinness Group and Vesti Group. Yeah. That made me team leader, then general manager of the division. Okay. Yeah, and then strategy director after we bought the company. Okay. And IBM bought us and said, you're the creative, go and do what you want. So I had a lot of fun for seven years. And is that... And so, but obviously, people know you 
for your development of the Canavian framework. Is, is that where, where did there. that start? So, you know, decision support became knowledge management. We kind of like started to get into that in how do you map knowledge? You map it through the decisions make people make. If okay. you want to find decisions, you look for stories. So we started to map stories. Then we came to the attention of DARPA and the CIA. Okay. And by that time I was starting to work with complexity theory after talking with Basso and others. So who's that, sorry? Uh, Max Basso. Right, to explain. Um, uh, major, wrote knowledge assets, yeah. Okay. Major figure, died tragically too young. Okay. And um, we got invited down to Washington, which was a bit of a shock, right? And ended up doing work before and after 9-11. Um, I mean, I remember when Poindexter, who used to be Reagan's national security mm. advisor, mm. First time I drew Canavian, the Canavian framework for him, we looked at it and he said that explains 50 years of failure in American foreign policy. Wow. Okay. We treated complex as if it was complicated. Right. And if you want to become a colonel in the US Army to this day, you're, you're trained in Canavian. Okay, wow. Um, so just so explain that to the audience then. What, what's, what's the differentiation between complex and complicated? What uh, complicated, there is a relationship between cause and effect that you can discover by analysis or by expert deployment. Yeah. Complex. You've got what are called enabling constraints, but there are too many factors modulating the impact. So you can never understand an outcome. You can't predict the future. Right. So you have to adopt multiple safe to fail experiments. You can't actually try and plan. Yeah. You plan for experimentation. Okay. And that's really important in foreign policy. And as I say, we then moved into human terrain mapping. Then that started to move into the development sector, into education. Right. Seven years in IBM and it all got too difficult. So I left. Um, Singapore government gave us a contract to build their risk assessment and erosive mm, scanning system. Mm. So that gave me a big contract to leave and set up Cognitive Edge. Okay. And I started to realize because this was when business process re-engineering was taking mm. off and that was the height of engineering metaphors of okay. systems thinking. Kind of like this stuff is really cool, but it won't work where people are involved. It will okay. work for highly structured systems. Yeah. And I think the really original aspect of Kinevin, to be honest, is it doesn't say anything is right or wrong. It says everything is wrong or right in context. Okay. And it's the first framework which actually says lots of different things and incompatible things are okay. Yes. Provided you understand the context first. Right, okay. And in terms of how you've seen that have an impact, you talk about its impact within the, the American military. Mm. I mean, yeah, how, how are people using it? All over, it? it's been used in its you know, development sector, use it for evaluation, there's been books being published, if you check on Google Scholar. Mm. The thing I'm really pleased about is I put it into the open domain. Okay. I think once or twice I've pulled people back trying to hijack the brand, but only yeah. once or twice. Yeah. And people have just found it useful without the yeah. need to be trained. And I yeah. think that's why it's got the references it's got and the base it's got. And yeah. Then we won the Academy of Management Award after the Harvard Business Review put us on the front cover. Okay. And it took off from there. Right, okay. So I've read about you talking about the, the West abandoning its relationship to non-causal systems. Yeah, it's a bit more complex than that. What you see in Northern Europe and then in North America, um, it kind of like coincides with the Reformation, with the Enlightenment, with the rise of science is the concept of linear material cause, which is one of four causes that Aristotle talked about, suddenly becomes so valuable and attractive that it starts to dominate. Right, and so just break that down. So linear material cause, what do you mean by that? It means that there's a direct relationship between cause and effect and you can predict it, like Newton's law right. of motion. Okay. And you see Compton and saint found sociology at the same time. Yeah. And they basically believe they can write equations to determine human behavior. Okay. And that really, carries on for a long period of time, mm. but Southern Europe, you know, Western Celtic states, 
It's interesting, if you look at identity modelling, mm. the Celts and Southern European score like Africans and Asians, not like Northern Europeans. Okay. Because they're tribal. Right. So it's the community identity is more important than the individual identity. Okay. And that's a huge divide in religion and politics. So that gives rise to a different understanding of causality. There's a famous phrase, all right, nature may deal the cards, but nurture, nurture plays them. Okay. Right, so the, the, well, you've got to think called fundamental attribution error. Right. The okay, belief so there must be a reason for everything. Okay. Now you see that in Northern Europe, the States, you don't see it elsewhere. Hinduism, Buddhism, we've got some, something's just off. Something so there is There's no, no reason. reason for them to okay. be. Right? So the, the, the Northern European thing, there has to be a reason for everything. Okay. And that's sort of against complexity theory. Okay. And, and what, and Kenevin brings in some of these other understandings it of It brings causality. those in, but it also says there's nothing wrong with linear material cause. Oh, right. So it retains... You know, human beings have learned how to create that. order and prediction. If you're okay. in an operating theatre, you want a very predictive environment. Yeah. And that's a unique aspect of humans that you don't see in nature. So we shouldn't right. abandon process reengineering. Okay we should limit it to appropriate context. Okay. And that's the, the central insight of it? Central insight is bounded yeah. applicability. Different things work in different contexts. Okay. You have to do situational assessment before you decide what decision you're going to make, which brings yeah. us back to SenseMaker. Okay. SenseMaker does situational assessment and before just, you decide how to act. Okay, so explain, explain for people what SenseMaker is. We can talk more about it. Well, SenseMaker is software, which yeah. basically works about mass capture of observations, self-interpreted at the point of origin. Yeah. It allows me to do a situational assessment when people haven't, aren't trying to decide what to do. Because the way you assess a situation normally is you decide how to act, then you yeah. justify the action. Okay. So to make people assess a situation before decision, you have to separate the processes. Okay. And, and so, so we've got this idea of a, a human sensor and we the SenseMaker platforms allow, allows us to capture the stories of that individual. Yeah, and that and maps the territory. Once okay. you've mapped the territory, you can decide what pathways you want to take. You shouldn't okay. start with the pathways. So it's like a, a map, it's a territory map yeah. of our human environment. So you set a goal, all right? You might yeah. be setting a goal which involves people going in a straight line across mountain streams, raging torrents populated by grizzly bears. Okay. If you've got a map, there might be a nice gentle contoured route that you could take, which would be a lot less energy and produce a better okay. result. And, and a lot of the time, managers and leaders, let's say, in organisations are it's operating without maps. And again, it goes back to the causality. They believe they can define a future state and close the gap. Okay. And that's what came in in the 80s with systems thinking. Right. It's interesting. I taught leadership with Peter Drucker. Okay. One of the things we both agreed on is that systems thinking is very different from scientific management and complexity thinking. Right. Because scientific management and complexity thinking maintain a role for human judgment. Mm. What systems thinking tried to do was to reduce it to processes, spreadsheets, and control rules. Right. And that's just bad science. Okay. So we have these maps of the landscape. It allows us to, to plot a path. And if you start a journey, you can change route when you discover things yeah. on route. If you have a goal, you don't discover novelty. But that, I mean, and I've, I've been around your work, and I think that's one of the most challenging aspects of, of what you talk about, this idea that... We, we abandon our, our It's our not goals. remotely challenging, but it's how we manage our families and our friends. Okay. You would never set core mission statements for your family and have KPIs for your children unless you're really sad. We actually manage complexity on a day-to-day -day basis in our ordinary life. Yes. And entrepreneurs do it all the time. It's only when you get massive bureaucracies you get this linear causal approach and this highly yeah. systematic approach. Is there not something motivating about having a goal, having this ideal no, I, future state? I think state. part of the problem is too much turnover. So you've got this cycle now, managers want to do a major initiative and leave before the consequences are known. Okay. So you've got this cycle of change, which is actually really damaging business.
Right. CIOs at the moment are lasting for 14 months. Yeah. Yeah, okay. no, that's, there's no continuity in management when that happens. Mm. Um, CEOs of a top 500 companies, I think two years is a, is a good lifespan. Right. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. So we need these goals uh, to, to give staff continuity when we have this, this churn of managers. We don't actually. Most staff just get on with the job. Right. Okay. And oh my God, another change initiative. Right? Yeah. And I often say HR basically have a Stockholm Syndrome relationship with CEOs, right? Right. Okay. Uh, fundamentally, most people want to get on with the job. Okay. And they want to improve things, they want to move in the right direction. But the minute you get rigid goals, you get goal, goal gaming, right? The yeah. other thing is, if you look at all the available scientific evidence, whenever people are working for explicit goals, it destroys intrinsic motivation. Right. Okay. And, and where do you need intrinsic, intr intrinsic motivation for people? Basically, a belief that you have to do something without being targeted. Okay. So everything which makes a nursing or education work gets destroyed by targets, and the okay. same in companies. Right. You see customer-facing staff who follow the rules, even if it's the wrong thing to do for customers. Yeah. But you don't get fired for following the rules, even if it's the wrong thing. Right. Okay. And so we, we've basically taken the engineering metaphor too far. We're dealing with a complex human ecology, yeah. not a machine. Okay. But managers want to feel like they're in control. They, they want to feel like they've got a machine they can manipulate. They can feel like it, but reality is different. Just think about teenage children, all right? If it won't work with teenage children, it ain't going to work in your company. Get real, all right? Okay. Yeah. Actually, most managers want to survive. Right. You survive a lot better if you work with reality rather than an artificial construct on top of reality. So you speak about idealising approaches versus naturalising approaches. Is this, is this what you mean when you're talking yeah, about naturalising approaches? Yeah, it's to root approach? what you're doing in the natural sciences. Okay. So basically what you do is you say, what do we know from natural science about systems, about people? Let's develop methods consistent with that. Okay. So because start with what we know about human beings. I can replicate the experiment. Case-based okay. approaches, you can't replicate the experiment. Okay. And you have selected cases. Right. Okay. Okay, it's getting cold. Yep. Time for a cup of tea. Home. Let's go back. Okay, we're back in your beautiful yeah. tea, <laughs> with tea, uh, in your beautiful thatched cottage here in, in Wiltshire. First of all, tell us about this tea, it's special tea. Oh, you picked this up in Singapore, it's a series of different tea leaves folded into a ball. Okay. And as the water heats it up, they gradually peel off, so the taste changes as it goes through the brew cycle. So I'm looking forward to some more, some more tea later in the, in the cycle, but it's delicious, it's very good. So before we left the hill, we were, we were talking about this idea of managers loving the metaphor of a machine for a company that, that they can control. And we talked about the problems with aiming towards a goal. One of the quotes which I like of yours, but which I also find often garners the most resistance is this quote that we should manage the evolutionary potential of the present rather than aiming towards some idealised future state. Say more about that. Yeah, and I generally introduce that after I've woven them into a story yes. by which they'll realise it's true. Right. right. Um, part of the problem you've got in organisations is these days, it's like every year or every two years, there's a major new change initiative. Mm. And the way we make decisions is we basically do a partial observation of about 5% of the available data we match it against remembered patterns. So yeah. everybody's remembered patterns is a failed initiatives. Right. Added to which people go away in rooms with consultants, they set goals which are unachievable, which are too idealistic, because that's what you do in workshops with consultants. Yeah. Um, and you doom yourself to perpetual failure. Yeah. Now, in my experience, most senior executives know this. Mm. 
They just didn't realize it was an alternative. Okay. So I normally make the metaphor with managing teenage children. Right. I mean, you wouldn't have KPIs, you wouldn't have mission statements, you wouldn't have objectives, you know. You just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Believe it or not, there are firms in the States now which will actually set those up for your families. But I put that with the guys who won't let me talk about evolution because it's a controversial theory when they're dealing with Ebola preparation, right? It's like crazy days. Yeah? Hmm. The reality is none of us would do that with our families or our friends. Right. With families and friends, we manage things with a sense of the direction we want to achieve, and there's things we don't want, Right. but we move from the present. Yeah. I mean, a lot of our work now is actually not to define goals, but to define negative boundaries. Mm. So what you do is you use, because people naturally spread negative stories, you know, when you tell fairy stories, yeah. You don't say Janet and John stayed at home and did what mummy and daddy said because nobody would listen to you. But that's the corporate story. Right. You basically do Janet and John went into the woods despite mummy's and daddy's best advice and look what happened to the little buggers, all right? And they almost yeah. died, all right? Right. You have a happy ending because you want them to sleep at night. Mm. Yeah? The reality is we learn through failure, not through success. Yeah. The stories your kids list, listen to are stories about how you almost failed. Yeah. And we're almost biologically attuned to that because avoidance of failure is a more successful strategy yeah. than imitation of success. Yeah. So we set goals by creating negative boundaries. Okay. So you basically, equivalent. we don't want to go here. Mm. Now where we go now opens up new possibilities. Okay. Because journeys mean you can discover things which in context are more appropriate. Okay. But you couldn't have anticipated. Right. And I keep saying this. This is my disagreement with people like Stacey and others, yeah. all right? So explain Stacy for people. Ralph Stacy, right, was one of the guys who started to use complexity theory in management for the first time. Most of us have read him. Right? Yeah. Um, he thinks everybody else is wrong, and most of us think he's partially wrong, right? Okay. Um, because he believes every manager, basically, he's anti-managerial. Okay. Now my point is, we have to manage. Right. Yeah. You manage your family. You manage your children. You manage all sorts of things. States have to manage. Yeah. The issue is, how do you manage? Right. So if you've got a highly constrained system, you can manage it through rules, objectives, and goals yep. because you've got predictability. Yep. In a complex system, you have, you have to manage in a different way. Mm. Now, the origin of the word manage in English gives us a good metaphor here. Mm. Right? So it comes from the word menagere, which I can't pronounce in Italian. Right. Menagere, I think. Yeah? Yeah. Which is the ability to ride a horse in dressage. Yeah. It then gets corrupted by the French. Yeah. Many things have been corrupted by the French. Not as many as by the English, but many. Right? to mean household management. Right. So think about the difference between managing a household budget, mm. which is ordered, mm. and learning how to ride and manage a horse in dressage. That's okay. the difference. Right. You're managing, but you're managing in a different way. Yeah, okay. But somebody like Stacey Ullman, from what I understand is, he would say, well, as, as long as you've got a human involved, who of themselves are complex, then you're dealing with a complex adaptive system. And you disagree with that? No, I disagree. The trouble with Ralph, he's a reformed economist and converts are always the most dangerous, all right? Um, if you look at a hospital operating theatre, mm. the ritual on entry transforms identity into role. Okay. So an operating theatre can work as a team, or yeah. rather a crew, yeah. which is what it technically is, without prior knowledge of each other because of the training and the high degree of order. Right. You see the same on aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Um, firefighting crews. Yeah. Basically, human beings have developed methods to create order and predictability okay. in aspects of their lives. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. The trouble is we take it to excess. Okay. Okay. And Ralph is swinging the pendulum too far. Okay. 
you know, he's gone from rigid order to rigid unorder, and anything mm. which Ralph disagrees with is called systems thinking, which is, you know, bad. Okay. So, so you're saying systems thinking still has a role? Well, it, it's an interesting thing. I mean, Gerald Midgley, who's a fellow professor with me at Hull, you know, yeah. he basically says if you look at it, you've got naive realism, which characterised early systems thinking. Mm. But also a lot of complexity thinking. The so naive realism. Everything that. can be managed or controlled. Okay. So realism is opposed with idealism. The, uh, mm. As we say to postmodernists, the world exists, guys, live with it. Right? Okay. Um, naive realism basically says we can control it, we can determine outcome. Yeah. So you'll see a lot of the complexity guys who are into modeling and agent-based simulation think they can do the same. Mm. And early systems thinking, systems dynamics, um, computa computational systems thinking, systems modeling, mm. Um, cybernetics, all right, yeah. was what Gerald calls naive realism. Yeah? Okay. Um, then you get people who oppose that, you know, Stafford Beer and others. And I would argue people like Beer, if they'd had complexity science available, would not have created things like the VSM model. So what's, what's the VSM model? Oh, it's, and it's a hugely complex diagram, all right? Okay. And you can see at Stafford Beer, I admire hugely, has intuited complexity, but he hasn't got the science. Okay. So he can't break away from linear causality. The great liberation of complexity science is it gives you a base in science to say you've got a non-causal system. Okay. And the minute you realize that systems can be non-causal, everything becomes simple again. Mm. Yeah, if you're trying to create, if you believe causality is a necessary condition, life becomes very, very complicated. Right. So my belief now is you know, naive realism v. realism is an okay. important distinction. Okay. Yeah? Uh, social constructivism, re-realism, is an important distinction. Disposi dispositionality well, of... v. causality is an important distinction. Okay. And putting all of those under one bracket called systems thinking is a waste of space. So a right. realist philosopher yeah. basically believes the world exists. Yeah. You can contrast that with social constructivism. Yeah. If you take his extreme form, I mean, Rorty, and Rorty does some good work, but Rorty argues if Native Americans believe we emerge from a clam shell, it has the same epistemological significance as archaeological evidence that humans migrated across the land bridge from Siberia. Mm. And now that, I think, is nonsense, right? But mm. there are a lot of things in human systems which are socially constructed. Right. But some of the social constructions get real. So, for example, this is Deleuze's concept of assemblages. If you tell stories, other people tell similar stories, the stories reinforce themselves. Yeah. They reach a point, the English language word for this is a trope. Yeah. yeah, in Deleuze in terms of an assemblage. It's a pattern of narrative that we can't escape from. Okay. So it has downwards causality. Right. And this is what happens around things like Trump, around Brexit. It's what demagogues use. Yeah. They create a narrative construct which, through feedback loops, self-reinforces. Right. Yeah? Um, to the point where actually it provides a constraint. Yeah. yeah? Now, that's actually quite dangerous. Mm. So the sort of philosophical I belong to basically says, yes, some things are socially constructed, some things which are socially constructed become so constrained that they exist independent of their creators, so it's not a matter of perception anymore. And there's a whole body of stuff we can discover through natural science, which actually is repeatable, experimental. We've got okay. reality. Right? Yeah. So that's the other distinction. Okay. And I think the interesting in management science is what Frederick Taylor and the like did back at the turn of the last century. Mm was to try and take a, an empirical approach to scientific discovery. Yeah. yeah. Now, the problem with that, and it carries on into the modern day with cases, is you get selection bias, observer bias, everything else. Mm. Yeah? And nobody can repeat the experiments. Right. 
So when you say cases, you mean case studies? Yeah. yeah. So if you do yeah. case studies, all right, your yeah. problem is you interview people. Yeah. The way people recall the past doesn't bear any resemblance to the past. Yeah. If they succeeded, they remember it differently if they failed and so on. Mm. You're selective on the cases you do. Mm. So let's take Lean Startup as a book, which is very mm. popular. Yeah. The guy studies a group of people who succeeded in Silicon Valley. Mm. Now he believes what they tell him. Right. Now we know from all the available evidence that if you've been very successful, you remember things as an ordered process based on things that you did which were brilliant. Yeah. If you were unsuccessful, it was all bad luck and somebody else, some of the bastard's problem, all right? So right. we can't trust the recall. Yeah. And I remember challenging this and saying, but did you study the companies who failed? And the answer was, why would I do that? Mm. And we said, well, we did when I was in IBM with Dorothy Leonard, all right? Yeah. And we found the companies who failed did all the same things as the companies who succeeded. Right, okay. What you've got is a market where a percentage are bound to succeed. Right. What happens with social science and management science as a subset is they find a bunch of cases, they identify a set of things which, do, which you should do, but what you should do is always retrospective to what happened. Mm. If you're doing real science, you create a theory, you see if it produces the same results the next time. Okay. And you never see that with social science. Right. Mm. So what we're doing is taking a naturalizing approach. So we're basically saying, what do we know about cognitive neuroscience, about human decision-making, about nature of systems, which has been subject to proper scientific validation and repeated experiments, so we know it's true. Okay. Or it's mathematically true, yeah, which is the okay. same thing. And that acts as a constraint on what you do. Okay. So, but, and you were talking previously about constraints in terms of things we should not do, or things that we know no, are likely to... No, constraints are, are positive and negative. Okay. So um, there's a basic difference between, say, a a, a, an enabling constraint mm. and a governing constraint, all right? So a governing constraint is context-free. Yeah. It applies in any context. An enabling constraint is context-sensitive. It varies according to context. Okay. Yeah? And I normally make the difference there between rules, which are held to be universal, and heuristics, mm. which adapt. Right, heuristics. So rule of thumb. famous one, all right, is Napoleon, who revolutionized warfare. Yeah. By creating a heuristic for his generals, which says, if in doubt, march to the sound of the guns. Okay. Now, that was actually revolutionary. The Marines now have a new version of it. Stay in touch, capture the high ground, keep moving. Mm. Because if you know, before in warfare, the general issued orders, horses ran with the orders. And occasionally, sub-generals decided they'd do something spontaneously. Yeah. And the history of warfare is a series of accidents. Okay. Now every general knows what to do and they know what the other generals would do, so you've got self-organising capability. Mm. That's called an enabling constraint. Okay. So we do some work with one of the world's leading fashion houses, for example, where we identified the heuristics their buyers used, codified them in memorable form, added them to teaching stories, and that's the only rule system. Okay. Because in that environment, you've got high levels of ambiguity, people making decisions very quickly, you need some type of constraint. Okay. Yeah. And then make another difference between resilient constraints and robust constraints. Well, actually, before we go on to that, yeah. so, so you've made the case there about these, these context-specific constraints, yeah. enabling constraints. How do you get to the constraint in the first place? Oh, you, you, you do narrative mapping. That's what SenseMaker does. Yeah? You do field ethnography. So the classic, this is a thing called the Ashen Framework, right? When mm. people make a decision, you say, what artifacts did you use? What skills were necessary? Um, what heuristics were used, what rules of thumb would you give advice to people? Okay. Yeah. Um, but how is that different from not just take, put, taking success cases? 
Oh, so you're partly doing that, all right? But okay. your, co your co-definer is a heuristic, which isn't a rigid rule. Okay. So march to the sound of the guns is measurable, mm. but you don't know what results it will produce. Mm. Yeah, that's the difference, right? Um, so the climbing one, three points of contact is another okay. one. Yeah. yeah. So they're measurable. The American Marines, if the battlefield plan breaks down, capture the high ground, stay in touch, keep moving. Okay. Measurable, but highly adaptive. But couldn't, so the critique there might be, if I'm Eric Ries and I'm talking about Lean Startup, well, I might say that actually my heuristic is, well, we, you know, we, t we test our market fit with our prototype products. You know, we interview customers. I don't know what his yeah, rules are. So what? Are. I mean, everybody does that anyway. Okay. So, but I'm, I'm still... I mean, uh, if, if, you, if you read Lean Startup, if you pivot three times on Sunday, you're bound to succeed. Because, right. yeah, I mean, this is just nonsense, all right? What you've actually got is a confusion of correlation with causation. Right. Based on a partial data set anyway. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the fact is iterative fast prototyping is really useful, but in Kinevin terms, that's the liminal domain of complexity. Right. In true complexity, you do parallel experiments, not a single experiment. Okay. So, you know, Lean Startup doesn't really get complexity. Yeah, in, what, because it's too reductive? It's too be... reductive and it's too linear, right? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's I've got an idea, I'll see if I can make it work, I'll iterate it till it does or I'll change it. If okay. it doesn't work, I'll try something else, right? That's mm. bad strategy in complexity. Okay, but how is that not a heuristic or enabling constraint? Mm. Or how is that different from what you've described at the fashion house, for example? That's still where oh, I'm... If in doubt, pivot would be a heuristic. Okay. If you pivot three times, you'll succeed is stupidity. Okay. All right? That's the difference, all right? So okay. let's look at safe-to-fail experiments, because that's yeah. a key aspect. Mm. What you see in organisations is you get massive conflict mm. under conditions of uncertainty because yeah. the evidence supports competing hypotheses. Right. And if you're a senior decision maker, you can't resolve it. You've got to bet on one idea. Yeah. And because you're going to bet on one idea, everybody will try and make the evidence support their idea so they're mm. not objective. Mm. And nobody dares fail because you bet on their idea. So if they fail, you never bet again. So right. that's downward spiral. Yeah. In a complexity approach, you do it very simple. Which hypotheses about what we should do now are coherent? Yeah. Now, to agree your idea is coherent, I can think you're wrong, but I agree your idea is coherent. Okay. So that's massive conflict resolution step number one. Okay, and what yeah. makes it coherent? There's some evidence for it. It's worked in other places. Yeah, okay. It might work here. There's some science behind it. Mm. You know, everybody agrees it's a good idea and nobody disagrees. Those are all reasonable tests of coherence. Okay. Yeah? Um, if it's coherent, it gets a short amount of short amount of, a small amount of resource to run what's called a, pa a safe to fail experiment yeah but all the coherent hypotheses have parallel experiments right so you're probing the space to discover what's possible okay. probe sense respond yeah yeah what that does is frequently what happens then is the experiments mutate or change or combine yeah, yeah. and a new stable position emerges which you can then do the linear iteration on okay so the whole lean startup concept of rapid prototyping which is just a variation of scrum which is just a variation of prototyping mm. there's nothing new about this all right, right. it's just rebadging stuff okay yeah? um basically you do that in parallel but you do this before you parallel before you get into the linear process okay and that's one of the ways you reduce failure so smaller experiments with lower resource up front means you have fewer failures when you're putting more resource in downstream and the, the conflict resolution isn't to be underestimated a huge amount of executive time yeah. is spent trying to make impossible decisions without adequate evidence. Mm. And a huge amount of their manager's time is spent massaging the evidence to support their pet idea. Mm. You, you get rid of that, you can make a huge efficiency improvement. 
Right, which then gives you a little bit more resource to make and these parallel And it also means you move fast. So you don't spend six months investigating it, three months discussing it. Yeah. Within one day, you start your experiments going. Mm. Yeah, so again, you get that first mover advantage, which is critical. Okay. Now, to take you <clears throat> back, you, you made the distinction between enabling constraints and governing constraints. Yeah. What do you mean by governing constraints? The governing constraint is a container. Right. So within this boundary, all right, you can do what you want. Mm. You can't cross this boundary. Okay. And so that's called the governing constraint. Yeah. A fixed constraint says this is the way you do it. Okay. No variation is permissible, right? Mm. That's also the difference between what we call good practice and best practice. Mm. So in best practice, there's only one way you're allowed to do things, like okay. driving on the left in the UK. Yeah. All right. On the other hand, with governing constraints, within a boundary, and the boundary may be education. It may be you've got to be a doctor. Within those boundaries, you can do what you want. Okay. So to give a UK example on this, yeah, one of the reasons that doctors give for leaving here to go to Australia is they're now subject to nice guidelines. Yeah. So they're subject to fixed constraints in what they do, not enabling constraints. Right. So they can't vary what they do for individual patients. Right. All right. You know, I've had personal experience of that. You know, I was got diabetes too, possibly because it'd been given statins. Mm. Right. Now I reversed it because I knew you could reverse it. But then because I've got diabetes on my label, I meant to have more statins, but at more risk of heart attack. Right. Despite the fact that 20,000 cases of diabetes are caused by statins, so I'm obviously mm. vulnerable to this. Yeah. Yeah. So you get more statins. So I end up to so my doctor can hit their goal of actually having the statins prescribed and throwing them in the bin. Mm. And corporations got thousands of examples of people doing totally unnecessary things because the rule system doesn't allow enough freedom of movement. Okay. Yeah. So what might be an example in that scenario of an enabling constraint then? Um, to a fixed constraint well, let's give you expenses as an example, right? Okay. Um, I mean, when I was in data sciences, we had a basic rule that the enabling constraint is you, if your manager doesn't like it, they won't sign them. Yeah. Okay, so that was reasonable, right? So okay. one yeah. night I left the client, I walked out on a client at three o'clock in the morning um, because they, were, they decided to make one of their suppliers bankrupt to teach the others a lesson. And I just I've had enough, so I left, all right? Been up for about 12 hours. I needed to get a hotel. Yeah. The only hotel was a five-star hotel. It cost 200 pounds 20 years ago. My manager didn't bulk. Okay. Yeah, you should not have driven. Yeah, it would have been dangerous if you'd done it, right? Um, then we moved into a different organization, and I had a rule, you know, driving back from Luxembourg, right? Only one night in a hotel, and you've got to drive. You wouldn't pay for the flights. Mm. Yeah, that wasn't the rule. Mm. So we got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, we drove to the hovercraft, we got the hovercraft, we drove to Luxembourg, we won a contract, we drove back. One o'clock in the morning, I fell asleep at the wheel. Right. Yeah. Everybody lived, which was bloody lucky. Right. Mm. He almost got fired over it mm. because he'd had a rigid application of rules and there yeah. was no variation. Okay. We also found in IBM that people would travel for four days because then IBM paid for your laundry. Because everybody got pissed off with the rules because it was, in, you know, you can only spend this much in a hotel even if there isn't a hotel available at a cheaper rate. So yeah. they claimed every allowance going, so actual real expenditure went up. Okay. But compliance went up in parallel. Mm. And that's an example of over-constraint and not trusting human judgment. Okay, right, okay. And okay. we had a lot of fun in IBM. At one point, they decided that nobody could travel, right? Classic big company. So you had, they built a Lotus Notes system to get authorization to travel. Mm. 
And I noticed it had classes of travel, so I reckon senior executives would, yeah. So I just put every travel request in and tick club class. Because I was pretty sure, because everything had to be approved by country general manager. Right. And I was absolutely sure he wasn't checking every expense. And so for three months, I travelled all over Europe club class. My manager looked at it, went ballistic. And I said, but I've got proper authorization," And I had. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because the country general manager decided off. Right. And I was doing that just to make a point. Yeah, I okay. mean, to be fair, my manager then used it as ammunition and went up, all right? Okay. We get into this silly, you know, excessive constraint actually produces deviant behavior. Right. Okay. When you're dealing with complex human beings. Yeah. Right. Um, but, it don't, but human beings will accept constraints, so I won't drive on the right in, in the UK. Right. When it's Unless not, when a it's child not... runs on the road in front of me, at which point it doesn't matter where I drive. Mm. Okay. Yeah? Okay. So I think that that's the issue, right? So when the big can So humans do... will respond to constraints. One of the great things about humans is we actually have constraints which work outside kinship groups. We've created things like laws, mm. and also things like acceptable forms of behaviour. Okay. And rituals. So we like order. We're really good at it. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. All right. Um, but there's a big difference in Kinevin between order, which is self-evident, which everybody buys into, yeah. and order, which can only be understood by experts. So that's obvious against complicated. Mm. Best practice against good practice, rigid constraints against governing constraints. Okay. Yeah. Another metaphor for this about enabling constraints is you often talk about the difference between an endoskeleton and an exoskeleton. Okay. So an insect has an external skeleton. Yep. Which bounds everything they do. Yeah. Yeah, whereas a mammal has an internal skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, which, so you have massive species variation in mammals, but less in insects. Mm. So that's another metaphor for enabling against governing constraints. Right, okay, yeah. They okay. provide a sort of inner core, a kernel, but allow a lot of variation around it. Okay, yeah. So, that's in, so you write about how we can learn lessons from ecology and biology when it comes to understanding complexity, but don't, <laughs> don't constrain ourselves for, with those fields. Where else can we look? I think this whole body fields. I mean, anthropology is really powerful. Yeah. And interesting anthropologists, you increasingly see them in medicine and HR mm. because they're trained to understand people and they actually, they're paranoid about excessive abuse of power. Okay. Um, so we draw a lot on anthropology, um, particularly the biological end of anthropology. Okay. And at a big seminar coming up in Milan where there's a whole group of us meeting on exaptive processes. Okay. Biology, right? Well, yeah, explain that. That's a, a term. Okay, so acceptation is um, dinosaurs' feathers evolved for warmth and sexual display. Yeah. In fact, we now know all dinosaurs had feathers. Okay. Now, new discoveries in northern China, stub-type feathers. But then an arboreal species of dinosaurs start to fall from trees, and they glide because they've got lots of feathers, so we get okay. flight. Okay. So a trait which evolves for one function under stress repurposes for something else. Mm. The cerebellum at the base of your brain... Yeah. Evolved to manipulate muscles in fingers. Yeah. It then accepts in humans to actually manage grammar in language. Mm. So the huge sophistication of human language couldn't evolve in a linear way. It required a non-linear acceptive shift. Yeah. Now, a modern example is a rating engineer maintaining the ra a magneto on a radar machine. Okay. Noticed a chocolate bar melted in his pocket. Mm. Now, lots of engineers had noticed this and had their trousers clean and sworn. He realized the significance. We got yeah. microwave ovens. Right. Okay. Thalidomide was developed for pain relief. Mm. Massive negative side effect, deformed children. Positive one, cure for leprosy. Right. So that's called acceptation. It's something yeah. for one purpose, which exacts for something else. Yeah. yeah. 
And human beings are quite good at this. Yeah. And one of the ways we use SenseMaker, for example, is to allow exaptive association okay. of ideas from different knowledge bases. Right, okay. And again, SenseMaker is the, is the platform... the platform, the software. ...that, that, that captures yeah. narrative and stories. But the issue people. is some people... I mean, we've we got very few polymaths left in the UK under the age of 50. Right. Because the education system now is highly specialised. Mm. Now, that's actually a major mistake because one of the strengths of British education has actually been our ability to produce generalists, but we're not producing them anymore. Okay. And a collection of specialists is not the same thing as a generalist. Right. A generalist knows a little bit about lots of things and can integrate disciplines. Mm. Specialists can't integrate. Yeah. And now, acceptation is a process by which you suddenly notice novel side effects and associations. Okay. So in corporate innovation, it's critical. So IBM accepts sewing machine punch cards. Yeah. Microsoft accepts software they develop for IBM. Mm. And Apple accepts next. Yeah. Generally, the big changes in industry are where people repurpose an existing capability for something novel. Yeah. And again, in terms of strategic edge, that's where complexity gives you the advantage. Well, engineering approaches based on best practice don't. Right. In fact, any case-based approach is based on past practice. Right. So it's not about innovation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and this term, exaptive learning, and its connection with art, can you talk a bit to that. Okay. I'll have some well, of your lovely tea. Art comes before language in human evolution. Okay. So we learnt to actually draw on the walls of caves before we really spoke. Okay. Now, like everything in evolution, it's accident. I mean, this is the crazy thing. Evolution is not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the luckiest. Right. Right? So basically what happens is we draw it, it kind of has use for the hunt. But what it also does, if you look at the level of human art now, it's massive, right? is it allows us to shift up a level of abstraction. Yeah. So if you go up a level of abstraction, you make novel associations. Mm. So I have some of my best ideas, either walking or at the opera. Right. Because I moved up a level of abstraction. So okay. my mind associates things in a less concrete way. Right. So abstraction is key to innovation. Okay. It's one of the arguments most of us from a scientific background are making against the focus on STEM education. Mm. Because actually, if you don't have art, you don't have innovation. Right. And it's this engineering culture coming through again, right? Engineers who actually appreciate art are more likely to be acceptive. Okay. And this, is this what Jobs was getting to when he talked about hiring people from liberal arts backgrounds yeah. into his engineering teams or and engineers that, who were poets or musicians? One of the big advantages people like Google. You know, Google right. employs engineers, so yeah. they produce engineering solutions. Yeah. So Android, for example, I mean, I speak here as a software developer. It cost me five times as much to develop for Android and 25 times as much to develop support it because they're engineers and they like things like that. They like tinkering, all right? Yeah. Apple forced me to upgrade to one version. Right. It always works the same way consistently. And to be honest, it's getting cheaper to shift Apple devices than to develop for Android. Mm. Because in that Apple appreciated that we've moved away from worrying about the hardware and software. We just want tools. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. I'm going to take you back to something you said earlier, um, that, which I understand is a, is a recent development of Kinevin, and that's this idea of this liminal zone, yeah. right? So to talk more about that, and I had a specific question on Twitter about how we recognise we're in that zone and what... Okay, so... 
Kinevin originally had two types of, it was a, Kinevin is a typology, not a taxonomy. That's important to realize, right? Sorry, break that down a bit. Typology, taxonomy puts things into rigid categories. And yep. Typology says this is different perspectives. Okay. Different ways of looking at it. Yeah. Right? Now, actually, Kinevin is a mixture of both because the primary division of order, complex, chaotic is a taxonomy. Mm. But then within that, there are different gradations, and that's the typology. Right? Okay. The other thing which is important about Kinevin is the dynamics. So yeah. things shifted between domains. But people never really got that. Okay. And that was when I got into the concept of liminality, which yeah. also resolved the question of disorder, finally. Mm. Right? So a liminal space, liminality in anthropology, um, when you don a mask, all right, you become another role. Yeah. It's a state of transition when you put on the mask between you being what you were and being what the role represents. So yeah. That's a liminal space. Mm. Yeah? So it's transition. So what I did was the domain, the difference between obvious and complicated is basically it's a gradient, it's not a rigid boundary. Mm. Yeah, at one extreme, it's you know, rigid order, you always do it this way. At the other extreme, what if you've got expertise? But the whole point is there are right answers. And the, you always do it, what, it this way, that's the obvious. That's the obvious, yes. all right? But yeah. the boundary between obvious and complicated is blurred. Okay. Yeah, it's drawn as rigid, but actually it's quite blurred, right? Yeah. The boundary between obvious and chaotic is a catastrophic cliff that comes from catastrophe theory, Ren and yeah. Tom. So basically, if you become complacent, you constrain a system which shouldn't be constrained, it will break catastrophically. Mm. But then the other two boundaries, and rather than represent them as dynamics, I can now represent them with liminality. So complex to complicated. Yeah. When you stop doing your multiple safe-to-fail experiments and one kind of like looks like it's the right direction, you go into yeah. liter linear iteration, Yeah, that's liminal. Okay. Yeah? So you're now into a state of, you've got kind of like, you've come out of the mist, you know roughly what to do, but it's not settled yet. Okay, so you've got some you predictability. Know you, you kind of like know where you're going. Yeah. yeah. Then it becomes complicated, which is valuable. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The liminal domain to chaos is drawn as a closed space into chaos. Mm. It's open on the other one. Mm. because that's where you dip into chaos for innovation okay. or you dip into chaos for mass sensing, which yep. is where no agent is connected with any other agent, mm. which is using randomness for statistical purposes. Mm. Yeah. So what I found... So, so explain that, randomness for statistical purposes. Okay, so this is wisdom of the crowds. Okay. If you know, a thousand people look at a problem and they have the right background, they assess it mathematically, the average of all of the guesses is the right answer. Right. But they mustn't communicate with each other. Okay. So that's a use of, of chaos, which is an unconstrained space. Okay. Right? So the issue is, if you enter chaos accidentally, it's a disaster. Right. If you enter it deliberately, it takes a lot of energy to maintain. Yeah. But it's a good thing to do. Okay. Now, what I found, by creating two liminal spaces, people finally got it, whereas they kept forgetting about dynamics. Mm. It also, if you look at the way it's drawn, divided disorder into two. Yeah. Which is complex, a liminal, chaotic. Yeah. A liminal, which is using disorder as a transitionary state. Right. And an inauthentic, i.e. not knowing which domain we're in. Mm. Yeah? And also it looks quite pretty as well. Right? And, <laughs> okay. and yeah, that matters. And it was one more stroke of the pen. Right. And yeah, I've had low, low, for years I've had this rule, any sense-making framework, if you can't draw it with a pen on the back of a table napkin from memory, it yeah. has no utility. Yeah, okay. And the specific question I had was, you know, how can we recognise when we're in that space? Specifically moving from complex to complicated. Okay, so you know you're in the complex space if you have competing hypotheses yeah. and you can't resolve them. Right, okay. If people are arguing about 
the details of something, that's liminality. Okay, okay. It's kind of like, well, we know this is probably right, but we're not sure how to do it yet. Okay. That's liminal. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, in IT development, Scrum is a liminal technique. Mm. Because you've got a defined requirement, you're going through multiple iterations to see if you've understood it. Okay. But you're not doing parallel ones. Right, you're, you're, you're threshing out detail. Yeah, got it. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, and the liminal concept is a good one because it's a state of imminence, a state of transition. Yeah. And the longer you hold it in a liminal state, the mm. more reliable what comes out of it. Mm. So mm. now you've got a trade-off between speed and reliability. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We talked about ethnological research and something you talk about is this idea of pre-hypothesis research. What, can you talk more about that? Pre-hypothesis or non-hypothesis. Or non-hypothesis, okay. It's, it's more the way you do questions, all right? So if, yeah. if you're using, where SenseMaker really go, is going to heavily emphasize over the next couple of years, journaling, yeah. Yeah. you haven't got a question. You just record an experience. That's the most valuable. Yeah. And non-hypothesis questions. So a hypothesis question is, does your manager consult you? Right. The hypothesis consultation is a good idea. Yeah. Remember when I got asked that, I phoned up IBM HR and said, how do I answer this? Mm. I've got several managers. Sometimes they consult me, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they should, sometimes they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, this is a context-specific question. Therefore, I can't answer it over for everything. Mm. And they said, average your experience over the year, which is just nonsense. Yeah. yeah. We take a non-hypothesis approach. What story would you tell your best friend if they were off the job in your work group? Right. Okay. Yeah. There's no hypothesis in that. There's no assumption about what you should say. Yeah. Therefore, it elicits the right material. Okay. Now, distributed ethnography, yeah, is where you get the community themselves to be ethnographers to other people in their community yeah. by asking that type of question. Yeah, so we've talked about pre-hypothesis research. Now, does, is that a way for you to, to, to gain some sense of your, your domain before you develop hypotheses? Is, yeah, is and I think an one of the things you can do, for example, is you can use SenseMaker to generate hypotheses where you can use traditional research. Okay. But the issue is that because, and the famous example I give, all right, is and for reasons we don't understand, all cognitive neuroscientists run experiments on radiologists. I think they offended them at some stage. So if you give radiologists a batch of x-rays, ask them to look for anomalies. And one of the x-rays, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 mm. times the size of a cancer nodule. 83% mm. of radiologists don't see it. Mm. And the 70% who do see it come to believe they were wrong when they talk with the others. <laughs> now, the problem with the hypotheses is it's based on what we understand from the past. Yeah. So if something novel has happened, it will restrict our ability to see something novel. Yeah. yeah so that's actually quite dangerous. Mm. Yeah. And again, what we do with mass sense, for example, by presenting infographics for mass indexing, that's liminal chaos, yeah? Right. Is it means at the 70% become visible as a cluster. Yeah. So you know people are thinking differently before they converse with the other people. Okay. Yeah. So if you have a hypothesis, it's highly risky under conditions of uncertainty. Right. Because the past is not going to repeat. You've got massive asymmetry between the past and the future. Yeah. So hypothesis-based approaches don't work. Right, okay. You move technically from inductive logic to abductive logic. Okay, so explain that. Okay, so deductive if A then B. Yeah. Inductive, all the cases of A have B, therefore it's a likely association. Mm. 
Yeah, abductive is sometimes known as the logic of hunches. What's mm. the most plausible connection between apparently unconnected things? Okay. Now, human beings have evolved to think abductively. Right. Which means we're brilliantly inventive, but we're also prone to conspiracy theories. That's where that comes from. Okay. So a lot of our work is how do you objectivize abductive leaps? Right. Objectivize abductive yeah, leaps. So explain that. We got fifty-five people who've come with these wild ideas. Yeah. We present the wild ideas to panels of several thousand. They mm. interpret it. If we get a dominant pattern, we know it's probably okay. okay. And so that's using the wisdom of the crowd. Yeah, that's using wisdom as our mass, sense in, our, mass sense in our terms. All right. Yeah. So the principle is you you can't rely on individual judgment. Human beings evolved to make decisions collectively, not individually. Yeah. yeah. It's quite interesting. If you look at it, most people in IT these days have... Well, is that because we tended to operate in groups? No, we're family, families and tribes, yeah. all right? Yeah. And that's our strength. We can yeah. cooperate. Yeah. And we can cooperate outside kinship groups, mm. which is unique. Mm. Now, the advantage of that is you can have specialists. Yeah. So in the modern world, for example, I mean, I've got mild dyslexia. Mm. Yeah. My blog is the people, people who know me send me DMs with correction, all right? People who fancy playing games go public on the fact I've got some grammar wrong. Yeah. Well, if the spell checker doesn't pick it up, I literally don't see it. Yes. Okay. Because I'm dyslectic. Yeah. I mean, all the words are there, all the letters are there. What's the automatic you know, right. get, get in life? Right? Yeah. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, pe most people in IT, I mean, I wouldn't survive as a programmer these mm. days. I was there in 3G or 4G mm. days, have Asperger's syndrome to a degree. Mm. So they're at the autistic end of the spectrum. Mm. Because if you don't have that, you haven't got the mathematical ability to actually do the work. Mm. And this is now called cognitive diversity. Mm. Yeah, that di different, you know, so-called educational deficiencies, these aren't. They're actually part of collective intelligence. Right, okay. So these single models of leadership, these single models of employees are, again, really bad science. Mm. Yeah, because human beings evolve for collective decision-making, not individual decision-making. Right. Now, if you can increase the number of people in the collective decision cycle, you can make it more objective. Okay. Okay. And but then still develop hypotheses. It is, but based. remember, it's not crowdsourcing. Yeah. And people make this mistake, all right? Because if you see a tweet storm forming, mm. the first tweets in influence what happens thereafter. Okay. So that's one of these which happened, for example, in the last American election. Mm. A lot of the counter Hillary tweets in the early days were actually bot generated or agent generated mm. because the person who starts the trend, people tend to follow trends. Yeah. And that's what we call the tyranny of herds. Mm. Yeah, because you haven't got object, you, people have forgotten about sampling. So people over, pay over attention to social media. Mm. And it's quite easy to manipulate it. And I, you know, one of the airlines I'm in, right? And I'm a high status flyer. I'm four. 8 million I'm about to get something special when I make 5 million all right yeah. and I've done most of that on economy travel over the years all right so yeah. I've, I've held this high status which gets me into first class lounges worldwide yes. it's wonderful all right yeah and I've got 20 odd thousand Twitter followers mm. they monitor high status flyers with large Twitter following because they know we can influence it badly so if I tweet a bit worried I may not get the upgrade you'd be amazed how often I get the upgrade it's just a matter of Using timing. The, the tyranny of the herd. Yeah, because you're basically manipulating it. Now, that's not an objective way for governments to make decisions. And people, okay. people have got seduced by social media, mm. which is actually really dangerous. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And so what's the antidote? What's... I don't think it's an antidote to it. I think, A, people need to grow up. I mean, I, everybody's getting fussed at the, you know, when we're recording this about what Facebook know about you. Well, mm. of course they know that. 
yeah. anything online people know or they yeah. can hack. I mean, I do yeah. war games every now and then. Mm. The rule is if you pay the Russian hackers enough, you can hack any system anywhere in the world in half an hour. Right. All right. So you should basically assume anything online, if somebody wants to get it, they can get it. Mm. Yeah. And just learn to live with that. That's yeah. the modern world. Right. Yeah. If you don't want it there, don't put it there. Yeah. Right. I think the antidote and government level is, for example, the work we're now doing, which we're offering to cities and small countries, which is community center sports clubs and schools as a distributed human sensor network right. to continuously capture narrative. But you know your sensor network. Mm. So you're validating your input. Mm. And that's one of the solutions. Yeah. And the way that it's captured and the way you can visualize it allows you to distinguish between wisdom of the crowd. Yeah, and what you're and, doing and is you're putting a buffer in the system. So basic fact on complexity, if you have an unbuffered system with a fast feedback loop, it will always be perverted. Okay. So if a system has a rapid feedback loop without buffering, you get perversion. Okay. So you remember one of the big stock market crashes yeah. was because the computer trading took place oh, without right. buffers. Okay, yes. So once a run started, it just went out of control. Yes, yes. And that's what we're seeing in social traders. media. Yeah. So people's lives have been destroyed yeah, through social okay, media. Yeah. Because you've got an unbuffered feedback loop. Mm. This is one-on-one science, right? Mm. So what we're doing by creating these human networks is put buffering into the system. Right. So you're including human judgment at the capture end. Yeah. Which means it gives you more reliability downstream. Right, at the capture end, but also at the, at the analysis level yeah. as well, right? Yeah, you're, you're basically it's human judgment, all right? Mm. And I think uh, yeah, it's one of the things, uh, one of the dangers we got with the sort of rigid engineering approaches, mm. which came in, in the 80s, is people tried to get rid of human judgment. Mm. Yeah, so instead of a manager having to take responsibility for pay rises and firing people, they mm. could fall back to a spreadsheet designed by HR. Right, okay. I remember the first time we got into the big bureaucracy, all right, I got told this was my wage profile for stuff. Okay. So I can only have 5% high performance. Mm. Now, I had 100% high performance. I never recruited externally. Yeah, I was very unpopular because if we had a vacancy, we recruited because we were a fun unit, all right? Yeah. We were a high-performing unit. Yeah. So I started to take on a massive unprofitable project to bring in contractors before the payroll mm. so I could get my profile right so I could pay my higher performers what they needed. Right. Uh, and that's an example of stupidities you end up with, these, with these systems based on the average of a normal distribution. Mm. Yeah, an attempt to develop by numbers and destroy human judgment. Right. Okay. In fact, I think one of the big things over the next two decades is human judgment. Mm. I mean, there's an old joke about artificial intelligence. Right. Which at a recent think tank we assessed as the second major existential threat to humanity after nuclear war. Mm. Yeah, above gene splicing, which is itself above global warming, which says how dangerous it is. Mm. And part of the problem is we're reducing human beings to following rigid processes in education to information regurgitation. Right. Well, I'm sorry, computers are better at that than humans. Yeah. So it's not that he, computers are re increasing in intelligence, it's that human beings are reducing in intelligence. Okay. And how do we change that? I think one is art in education. All right? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Marking plans are key. And I remember the first essay I wrote in philosophy at university, it came back with, this is metaphysics, please rewrite it. I sent it back with, this is metaph metaphysics, this is philosophy, please mark it. Right? <laughs> right. Now, I remember my daughter you know, won, you know, won a prize for a master's thesis. All right? I still remember her first essay where she didn't do very well. Mm. And I had to explain to her that these days you have to write to a, marketing pl a marking plan. Mm. And this is at university doing a subject like anthropology. Right. With that, if you're writing to a marketing plan, what matters is to work out what you'll be marked on, not to think. 
Yeah. And that's the reduction to process. Right. I think and some other things, I mean, we an education, now everything has to be taught, and that's a mistake. Mm. When I was at school, um, and you're getting old when you start to say when I was at school, right? And I got really depressed because I went back to give a lecture to my old school the other day, and if I'd given that lecture when I was there, I'd have been argued with, and okay. there was too much bloody respect from my point of view, right? Either way, so every week, and I still remember this, you know, first week yeah, in, in school, mm. you went to the front of the class, they gave you a card, and I still remember it, mine, it said, you support capital punishment, which I don't, I think it's abhorrent, right? right. At the age of 11, I thought it was abhorrent. Yeah. But I had to speak for seven minutes without preparation. Mm. I'd get for something I disagreed with, and we mm. did that every week from 11 to 18. Right. That made us super critical, and it yeah. made us think, and it made us generalists, because yeah. we read everything. Right. So we had a very simple process which generated the right behaviours. Mm. We didn't try and teach it. Okay. I mean, Australian schools got one that taught philosophy to primary mm. school kids and got mm. great results because it's teaching people to think critically. Okay. Yeah, so that they don't just regurgitate information. If you're writing yeah. to a marketing plan, you regurgitate information. Yeah. I mean, another story, I lost a teaching post in, um, I won't say which university, right? Because I scored 73.1 rather than 75 on the student score. Right. Now, I've never understood this idea that students should score lecturers, right? Right. Um, and the reason is, my and this is a master's programme, all right? Yeah. I put 20% of the mark for actually showing evidence you'd read something around the subject, which I hadn't taught. Okay. And 20% of the class thought that was wonderful and scored me. 70% said, Professor Snowden asked us to actually recall in the exam things he hadn't taught us. This is unacceptable. Mm. And I lost the post there. I mean, it was, yeah. okay. it was a fun week to go yeah. walking, right? I didn't get paid much for it, so I'm not too fussed. Yeah. But that really disturbed me. Okay. But you can see now lecturers are worried about how they're scored. Mm. And you can't run a system like that. Mm. Mm. And one university I'm associated with, big annual student satisfaction survey, they had a big thing up at the entrance. I gave, went to give my one week's lecture, right? And it basically said, student satisfaction survey, the higher our score, the more valuable your degree. Wow. Which is true, because mm. the student satisfaction rating is used to rate the university. But of course, you want to go to a higher rated university. And that's the trouble. We're making everything a computer program rather than an organic system. Right. And does this chime with your, your view about Focusing on impact rather than outcome. Yeah. That's something you talk about. Yeah. So you talk oh, vector, about we talk about vectors. Vectors. So, what right. do you mean so by a vector, vector measure says, am I going in the right direction at the right speed for the right effort? Right. It doesn't have a specific outcome. Okay. Yeah. It basically says, I need to move in this direction. I need to shift in this direction at this pace. Yeah. Am I doing it? Mm. So, you still measure, but you measure appropriately. It's like my point about management. Mm. Are you riding a horse or managing a household budget? They're very different. Mm. Yeah. Are you riding a wave of uncertainty, in which case you have to have a sense of direction and keep moving mm. to maintain balance? Or are you in a highly stable position where you can say what you should achieve? Okay. Context is everything. Yeah. I get, I get that context is everything, but for, I, you know, this just feels like such a revolutionary idea in, in, in the management context today, it is, right? Just in, it, it's almost as revolutionary as systems thinking was in the 80s. And yet, in some ways, it's back, it's back to an old wisdom. But, and, and one it of the... is, but you have to remember how change happens, all right? Mm. So, I mean, I've got memos, all right? This is memos, not mm. emails, all right? 
which says if everything do anything so stupid as to set up a data warehouse business with roller polo tools, I'll be fired because there's no future in it. Yeah, that became a big business. Mm. All right. If I set up an SAP business with a BPR consultancy, why am I doing that? It's a rejected IBM business plan. Oh, and why have you chosen Windows over OS2? Because it's obvious IBM will win. Those three examples in my history. Right. And what actually happened in the 80s is we went from this is wild stuff to this is dominant stuff in about a four-year period. Mm. And that's what happens when you go through these phase shifts, which mm. we're in at the moment. We were at the, yes. So and, the old orthodoxy is running out of value. The contradictions are becoming obvious. Right. That suppresses the new orthodoxy, but then it suddenly comes through very quickly. Right. Now, okay. we've gone on, for example, on the work we do from difficult to get the ideas across to actually having to compete with other people with similar ideas. Right. Or with people now buying for what it does for them rather than how it does it. That's one of the key indicators, by the way. Mm. Early adopters buy for what it does. You know, kind of like, no, rather, how does it do it? Right. They want to tinker. Yeah, they want to, yeah. Yeah, early majority buy for what it will do for me. But they don't want to know it does it for other people because they want first mover advantage. Right. Now, that's what we're now getting. That's when you know the market's flipping. Okay, yeah. There's a whole body of stuff I'm writing up on this using Apex Predator Theory, mm. which says you can actually now measure a trigger point. So we now know how to measure this. So you can basically say your market, and this could be internal as well as external, yeah. it could be fractal micro. Mm. Yeah? Your market, the diversity in your market means that there's more in the tails of the distribution than in the center. Yeah. So you need to now shift radically and quickly into multiple experimentation because your whole market may be about to disappear right. at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, the diversity is very little. Don't yeah. waste your time in experimentation because the market isn't ready for novelty. Mm. Stabilize. Mm. Yeah, if you've, got a, if you've got a dominant player, serve the dominant player. Yeah, okay. Instability, don't copy the dominant player, do something radically different. Right, okay. So okay. look, look, give it a technology example. I mean, Microsoft with Surface are now imitating Apple. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be Apple were competing with Microsoft as a minor player. Yeah. And it's, the whole game has changed. Okay. Well, this is one of the questions on Twitter was, you know, how do we, how do we encourage this shift towards complexity thinking? Do small things. It's the same principle, right? Complexity says start with where people are. Okay. So you don't go in and say everything you're doing is wrong, you need to do complexity, all right? Right. You say, you know, where, give me some intractable problems. Okay. Where are you trying to do something where conventional techniques have failed? Maybe we can help you. Okay. That's how you do it. Mm. So always start from where people are. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you can kill them all and start afresh, but that's, that's rare. Right? <laughs> okay. Option B, if it's available. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Metaphorically, it's sometimes there. Okay. When I've been through that a couple of times with companies, all right, mm. where you literally have carved something out, yeah, and kept it separate and let the old die. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Murdoch with the electronic printing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a so, good example. Yeah. The way it went around it was reprehensible, and the way the government left it did it do it, it was reprehensible. But yes, it's an example. Right. So for those not familiar with the UK publishing industry, that's when he created a new newsroom from scratch electronic printing Ignored presses. the unions, did and, it in and, parallel, and, and, and was allowed old, to get away with it yeah. by the government. Yeah, yeah, don't take me there. I was in the Maggie Thatcher milk snatcher school of thought. Right. <laughs> right. But it's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, I've got so. lots of copies of The Witch is Dead. I bought them at that time. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
So, Deb, you as a character, this has come up. I've got to be honest with you. When I t- said told people I was going to be interviewing you, and they and so you have a reputation, perhaps abrasive, curmudgeonly, mm-hmm. ar- arrogant. What's your what's your response to? I haven't been called arrogant for. I was called arrogant in my forties. When you get to sixty, it's called curmudgeonly. All right. Okay. Basically, I call it like it is. Right. Yeah. And good people will argue with you. Yeah. I mean, when Max was alive, if he and I were together, people would sell tickets. Neither of us thought the other was arrogant. Max. Max Brasso. Okay. Neither of us thought the other was arrogant. We just asserted an opinion. We prepared to argue about it. Okay. And people get that confused. They want everything to be some sort of bland, homogenous, everybody's been nice to each other. Nothing progresses then. Right. Added to it, it denies my cultural tradition. In my culture, we argue. If we like yeah. you, we argue with you. Right. This is back to your card <coughs> and capital punishment. I had this argument at a seminar, actually. Somebody went around, they were playing the dominance game because you get this in facilitation. Yeah. I find your attitudes really difficult to cope with. You know, I think we should all list, respect each other's opinions. And remember, I knew this was coming. I said, okay, that's your cultural tradition. Why should you impose it on mine? Right. Okay. My cultural tradition actually says you argue with each other. And yeah. we're only 3 million people. You're 80 million people. So mm. kind of like I feel we, we're entitled to some protection. Right. They weren't okay. expecting that argument. That was entertaining. Yeah. Okay. So it serves, it serves the, the, the debate. It's also, I think a lot of it is people don't like somebody who is honest. Right. Uh, I mean, I've called corporate bureaucracy. I've called the rule grain. I mean, I've yet to see anybody challenge me on some of the stories mm. because they know they're true. They just got this conspiracy to try and pretend their own artificial reality exists. Right. And, and what challenging about, it is unfortunate for them. What about those who say, oh, well, he's a theorist, he's an academic, he's got no experience in the real world? And... Rather ironic given the amount of projects we've done. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, you've yeah. cited many. I just find it comical. Okay. All right. And I think if you believe in something and you're doing novel stuff, yeah. if you want everybody to be nice to you, don't try and innovate. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to innovate, you've got to have the passion and the ability to carry it through and you don't take prisoners. Yeah. Prisoners are boring. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand. You have to protect them. Yeah. You've got to... Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's interesting. The people I respect are people who say, okay, I disagree with you. I mean, Simon Wardley and I agree and disagree. Right? Mm. Wardley maps is matches against my apex predator theory, is matches between the two. Mm. Uh, we agree politically, but there's lots of things we disagree on. And mm. we're not worried about disagreeing. Right. Yeah, I mean, and often, I mean, the way I was brought up, we defend a position over dinner and not necessarily have to be committed to it. But yeah. arguing a position was valuable. Mm. And people don't understand that. Mm. I think the other problem is they're trying to avoid conflict, and you can't avoid conflict. Right. Yeah, you're much better embracing conflict and not getting phased about it. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's the heart of what you're talking about in terms of sense maker and this human senses yeah. network is you you expose all those conflicts, right? Yeah. And you it's have quite an open conversation. About I remember it. once in IBM, which is very political. Yeah. This one guy came and he said, "I'm in charge of." knowledge management right yeah and said you're a trouble because I mean at that point people like Tom Stewart were saying IBM had two of the most original thinkers about knowledge management myself and Prusak and it was strange we worked for IBM because we were saying things which IBM didn't approve of okay so I'm now told I'm not approved of so I offered a promotion to go and work in OD yeah and I refused organizational it. development yeah. yeah I refused and he said why I said because I'm passionate about the subject he said mm. but I've given you a promotion to go and do something 
and he just couldn't get it. Mm. From his point of view, the whole objective of things was to manage something which was important. Mm. And he'd offered me a promotion to go and do something different, and why mm. wouldn't I take it? And mm. I wouldn't take it because I believed in the subject. Right. Now, irony, when we actually ran an innovation program three years later, he then spent two years trying to get me fired. Mm. Right? And then he pulled me onto his team. And I said, but you've been trying for two years to get me fired. He said, yes, but I need an innovator now because that's the in thing. Okay. And he just couldn't see that what, it was wrong, right? right? And actually, to be honest, he became quite a good friend after that. Okay. Because I realized from his perspective, it was all about corporate survival. Yeah. Whereas from my perspective, the corporation was just kind of like it was a useful vehicle. Yeah. But I was passionate about the subjects I was working on. Hmm. Okay. All right, perhaps that's a natural conclusion. Cool. Thanks for the to conversation. To our walk in the hills and your hospitality. Well, on the cottage. downs, all right. They haven't got hills down all here. Right. I come from Wales. We have real hills there. The downs. Yeah. Okay, Dave Snowden, thank you very much. And you. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks.